Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels. This is John Benzik from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Mike Arbeiter. Mike is a fellow entrepreneur in residence with me at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota, and he's currently the president of Fisher and Baker. Fisher and Baker is an outdoor lifestyle clothing brand based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mike's entrepreneurial endeavors go way back. In fact, in the 90s, he started a bike and outdoor apparel company called In Motion, which became the vehicle to introduce a proprietary padding system, which then became his second company, Liquicell Technologies. With Liquicell, he licensed that technology to a wide array of markets. We're just so fortunate to get his perspective on key entrepreneurial topics from a variety of different angles. To learn more about Mike's current company, check out fisherandbaker.com. Mike, thanks for being here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. John, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Absolutely. So, Mike, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your current company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help move them forward. And, Mike, the final part is the Let's Get Personal component, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Mike, it's time to rock and roll. Are you ready? Ready. Awesome. Give me the basics. So Mike, as you heard, I provided an introduction about you and Fisher and Baker, but in your own words, describe Fisher and Baker, its product, the product scope, and what makes it so unique among your customers. Sure. Um, Fisher and Baker was founded by uh, my business partner, Greg Horvitz, and, and Greg was seeking to expand upon his desire to build a scalable business within an area of passion for him, which was combining fashion and outdoor. You know, five years ago, I don't think we would have ever heard those two words in the same sentence, but but it's certainly coming about. Um, I met Greg and and. We got together and soon discovered that it was a, it was a pretty good match. He's a, he's a creative gentleman, and I don't have much of a creative bone in my body, but I can bring to the table strategy and marketing and brand building and operations. And So collectively, we set out to build a better line of men's functional outdoor lifestyle clothing that really is brought to life through more classic styling and design um, it's a it's it's a it's it's a need in the market for that individual that gentleman who's looking to in a sense outfit his entire day so how many styles do you have right now well it's a great question we're, we're starting out in what I call beta um, so we'll we will start shipping product in um, uh, four four to six weeks this fall and uh, there are four styles. That's it. Um, we will be hard launching the business in January of 2017 for fall 17 delivery. And that product line will uh, extend to about 14 styles. I see. Interesting. And so the uniqueness, do you think, do you think it's really that combination of fashion and function? I think it is a, a combination. Well, I think it's it's all of that plus 
this ideal of classic styling. It, 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 it brings menswear to outdoor from that standpoint, as well as great attention to detail. Um, building within a product, um, not so much a surprise, but an expectation that becomes a surprise to the customer. Um, that I, I, I would have never thought of this, but it only makes sense that it's part of this product, have you? And that's, that's really what we're trying to do. Sure. How many employees are with the company at this point? Well, um, today it's Greg, myself, and then we're outsourcing our design team, which is, which is a unique uh, proposition for us. But I have a fair amount of background in the textile business and, and, and fortunate enough to know some folks. And we were able to set ourselves up with an entire design team out on the West Coast that uh, has helped us not only design but develop and then all the intricacies of tech packs and working with production teams overseas, et cetera. So um, we work from that standpoint, part-time um, accountant, and, um, and that's it for today. So, Mike, you also started in motion back in the 90s. Tell me about that company and what made that product so unique. Well, we had a proprietary technology that we were able to build into products that improved comfort. Um, we started that business primarily in the cycling category, and, and we were able to take this technology and build it into things like gloves and, and chamois pads of cycling shorts uh, that really provided greater comfort. So that was our big differentiator there. Um, in motion was a performance business. Um, and by that, it allowed us to use the technology as a differentiator and use performance to expand the product line beyond cycling into the outdoor community. Nowadays, you see so many bicycle industry products proliferating, all the types of bikes and apparel companies. I'm just curious, do you think about getting into that business nowadays? Or are you glad to be out of that? <laughs> That's a great question, John. I, um, I have no interest getting back into the bicycle business. It, it, the bicycle business itself is an extremely difficult business, um, primarily based upon distribution. There, uh, distribution is tough, a great number of small businesses, um, tough credit. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult arena to channel products through um, today. Mike, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Fisher and Baker's product uniqueness, um, or even in motion for that matter, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers? Or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback? Within motion, yes. There, there, we, we did pivot um, based upon a, an understanding or a better understanding of what the consumer sought. And, and that had more to do with um, the ability to tell the story behind the technology, particularly in the cycling end of the product. Um, it, it was a much more difficult uh, process of educating the consumer on extending their comfort level over time. Um, with Fisher and Baker, um, and you're just starting that at this point, so perhaps you don't have the, the feedback fully yet. I know you've been doing some focus groups. Yeah, we've been doing focus groups, and, and the additional thing we've done is we have gone to three key markets. And, and walked into the market and, and really interviewed channel players and consumers to better understand even before we walk into this, what I'm calling beta. So I feel pretty confident based upon, yes, focus groups and, and a fairly extensive interview process. And although you did not start Fisher & Baker, give us the genesis or the story of how Fisher & Baker came into being. So my business partner, Greg, uh, actually was in the furniture business, and uh, his background is industrial design. 
he started his own uh, high-end furniture company and and soon discovered that it was more difficult to sell 10 15 20 thousand dollar pieces of furniture not real scalable um, and and sat back and really desired to uh, work with his passions and his passions really are outdoor and uh, in clothing and decided to combine the two of them had had this nice vision about who the customer was and decided to take his design background and and put it into uh, what is now Fisher and Baker today, the lifestyle clothing. So, Mike, on the topic of scaling a company, I'm going to ask you my own question of scale. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being insanely difficult, how difficult is it to succeed with an apparel company startup and why? I think uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, I, I wouldn't say 10, but I, I, I would say it's probably a seven or eight. I think it's very difficult because there's so much out there. It, it is so highly competitive to capture the consumer's dollar when uh, you know a shirt is a shirt is a shirt and how do you make it unique when it becomes personal on an individual basis. Um, so I think that you know I'm wearing it. This is this is part of me. This is my experience. This is what I'm exposing to the world. So I do think it's it's fairly difficult. I I believe that those that are more successful with it um, have both a strong vision for what's trending in the market, which you know. I, I don't like to use that word around investors because people don't like to understand trend. Right. But um, but that's that that certainly plays a role in it. I think the other thing that plays in a role in it role in it is is really understanding by being out there, um, which is I think more difficult today with younger generations who you know feel that the computer is their way of communicating. I I literally grabbed Greg and said, we're getting on a plane, we're going to New York, we're getting on a plane, we're going to Colorado, we're getting on a plane, we're going to California, and we're going to interview people on the street, and we're going to go into menswear stores, and we're going to not just interview buyers, but we're going to interview the the, the, the floor personnel. Um, we're going to talk to people about the innuendo that one faces between how one merchandises a men's store versus merchandises an outdoor store versus um, a department store. So I, I think the value of being there in front of people, experiencing what they see and they live every day in front of the consumer, including talking to the consumer, um, you, helps an awful lot. But that's it's a it's an enormous amount of work it's an enormous amount of time um and uh you know you have to have the guts to grab the person up the street and say you look like our customer can i talk to you yeah and so you did do that already yeah. yes and what were the top two or three things that you learned i would say uh n number one was this whole ideal of attention to detail um there's so much sameness out there that by adding in these little particles, I'm calling them, to detail that put a smile on someone's face. We, 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 we build an anorak jacket. It's a pullover that has a straight side zip for most people. We build it with an articulated zipper just so that when you're zipping it up and down, it's easier to use. And, and you know, having someone just try that on and utilizing the zipper it was just, it was amazing to see. Um, so I think that was one, um, the attention detail. Two is, as, as I mentioned earlier, we're trying to really produce or design clothing that outfits someone's every day. And so classic styling. Our competition out there ranges from, you know, expedition styling to futuristic styling to hardcore outdoor styling to men's wear. And, you know, talking to people about what they would wear from the office to the restaurant to a car camping trip, um, it, it, 
seemingly when you start talking about better products, if I can wear that to more than one thing, that's great. That's fewer things in my closet, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say those were the two key things and, and Greg's vision helped start down that path and this was maybe more validation to that. And how great is it for you to just head out and start talking to the consumer? I think particularly in the apparel business, you just wouldn't see that very often for a startup. I think people just have a creative tendency and they want to express themselves through some new apparel company. And that's a great piece of advice to get up and go and talk with consumers. Yes. You know, um, I'm fortunate to have Greg as a business partner because he was not going down that path. In fact, he was somewhat opposed to it. Um, And again, he's a creative type and there's this almost myopic view of what I'm designing and developing people will like. And so when I said I virtually grabbed him, I did. I said, I'm booking us the flights to New York. We're going. Come on. And and he, he, he thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was a wonderful, wonderful learning experience for, for both of us, my, myself included. Um, but I think it does position us, or at least prepare us, better for our future. Tell me how. So, Mike, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Mike, let's talk about raising capital. Did you raise capital for Fisher and Baker? We currently are self-funding it, but our our plan is to go to market uh, next year. And so we are actually preparing um, our fundraising efforts um, as we speak right now. I see. Did you raise money for InMotion? We did. And if you can recall back then, and I know you've been advising other startups as well. What do you think is the secret to successfully raising money? First and foremost, have a unique proposition. Um, Second is to lay out milestones that are both reasonable and achievable. Um, milestones that you have already hit and milestones that you're going after. Investors love to see that there are clear, distinct milestones that um, you've already hit and that you're going after and their money is being used to achieve those milestones. So I think those are very key up front. The third thing is to be extremely transparent. I, I see too many people out there raising money on on false hopes. And the problem with that is it always comes back to get you. You, you may raise a little bit of money, but then the, the next round thereafter, it, it will it will catch up to you. So just be transparent. It's I, I think that's those three things would be most important. That's great advice. As you prepare at some point in the near future to raise more capital for Fisher and Baker, Give us some more details about what your pitch deck outline might look like. Well, we'll start out by talking about the uniqueness of the marketplace, the, the, which, which really comes down to, you know, what's the problem we're trying to solve, you know, and what's our solution to it. Um, and then we'll get into where we've been, where we're going. Um, we have a bit of a uh, a bit of a situation where we will not show an awful lot of revenues before we go out. But what we're trying to do is show traction within our wholesale channel. So we'll, we'll push very, very hard to have orders in hand, um, which will hopefully, I believe, alleviate the concern that there's not a significant amount of revenues that have been booked. The other thing we'll do then is we'll show how we've mitigated risk and, and, and the greatest risk we face in our business is, outside of just flat out the consumer not liking our product is on the manufacturing side and the long, long lead times and the cash outlay, the capital outlay that one needs in this type of a business. And, and so we'll show uh, what we are doing to mitigate that. And then finally, 
what our overall strategy is and why we're why we're seeking the funds um, for said strategy. Let's shift gears and talk about finding a manufacturer. How did you go about finding a manufacturer for Fisher and Baker? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, my previous experience helped me. I, I, I know manufacturers are around the world, but but two, and maybe more importantly, was that I, I looked at other better brands uh, out there, brands that that showed both complexity in construction, use of textiles, and design attributes that were similar to the path we are going down, and then sought out who's manufacturing their goods. Today, most of that is in Asia, and so I, um, I networked with associates of mine who have directed us to uh, a number of manufacturers in Asia. Uh, we are also talking to a couple in Mexico and, uh, and one, uh, well, two in the U.S., one in San Francisco and one in Texas. Is that right? So you're considering domestic. Would you consider domestic for all of your production or just a portion of it? We, we would love to consider domestic for all of our um, manufacturing, but I, I don't believe in my lifetime that we'll be able to see that. Um, so what we're looking at domestic manufacturing are, um, are products that are less complex to construct. Um, in the U.S., unfortunately, when, uh, when containers were coming over from China, 15, 20 years ago with goods, they were going back empty. And, and someone got a smart idea to start filling them up going back. And what we did is we filled them up with all sorts of very advanced manufacturing equipment. And, um, and then we moved all that to Asia. And so it's all over in Asia. And then we started training people over there. And so we lost both the technological advantage from an equipment standpoint as well as the skilled labor force. Um, that understood some of the complexities to this this business. So, Mike, when you when you get a name of a manufacturer, how do you approach them? Do you send them an email? How do you do? You set up a Skype call. Tell us about that. So, what I've done is I've I've set up interviews with them via email, and most of the manufacturers that are quality manufacturers um, have profiles today, and so I'll request a profile. Um, and then, of course, review that profile and go back to them with additional questions uh, with regard to not only their capabilities, but what equipment they have. Uh, who are some of the con- the customers they work with today? What are their uh, you know their MOQs? Um, how, how do they conduct business with a U.S. company in terms of? Uh, terms, you know, what are what are the payment terms, which can be onerous at times. Um, what are the payment terms for new manufacturers of clothing? It's generally at least uh, a fifty percent deposit upon placement of purchase order, and then the remainder is paid at um, at time of presentation of documents at the port. Um, so. Uh, you pay for everything before you receive it. It goes on a boat. You receive it 30 days later. In many cases, that means you have 50% of your capital out um, six to eight months before it even ships. Um, in addition to that, depending upon how you're working with the manufacturer, and there's a couple of ways to do it. One is is a, a full package deal where they're actually buying all of the uh, textiles and trims for you on your behalf, they generally will will upcharge you somewhere between 12 and 18 uh, percent for administrative fees and just their caring of that the product for you, the raw materials. Or the other way is what's called CMT, which they're basically providing um, labor and the trims, and then you purchase the major raw materials. The problem with that, again, is the major raw materials are required well in advance. And in many cases, those facilities, which are called mills, uh, will seek uh, money up front as well. So there are cases where you will be paying for uh, goods 12 months before you'll ever see anything. 
Mike, so on fisherandbaker.com, the website, you have some apparel that's shown there. Who manufactured those items? So we have a factory in China that we set up to, to manufacture all of that. I see. Tell us about some more challenges that perhaps a newbie apparel entrepreneur might not be aware of in dealing with a manufacturer. Well, I think there are two other key elements to uh, understand. I take that back, three. Uh, one is the understanding of the product life cycle um, within the supply chain. It's, it's critical to understand when you need to order your first prototypes, your second prototypes, when you need to approve your colors, your size runs, your salesman samples, um, et cetera. So having a, an understanding of the what's called a PLM um, is, is extremely important. Second is, um, is communication. Communication is vital. Asia is really good at being able to mass produce product, but they pretty much play it by the book. And if your, for instance, your tech packs are not in order, and this just happened to Fisher and Baker, um, where one of the design team members failed to put into the tech pack the country of origin. Well, the country of origin is obvious in any product. One cannot ship a product out of any country to another country without having some marking of what the country of origin is. And, and this, this was missed on these garments that, that we had produced here. And, um, you know, getting through the communication gap of that whole element cost Fisher and Baker two weeks. And, and that's a, you know, that's tough. The third thing is, and, and again, I'm talking more specifically to Asia, but this is also true in parts of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe and, and Mexico, is understanding the culture and what takes place. Um, in Asia, particularly China, um, they have some big holidays. Um, there's Chinese New Year, which generally takes place latter part of January, runs the middle of February. It shuts everything down, and, 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 and they become some issues with that. One is not only is the shutdown, but two is, particularly in the textile world, um, there is a, a, a turnover rate that can be pretty high. There are factories in China that will lose 30, 35, 40 percent of their workers um, at, at the end of Chinese New Year because they've gone home and they've decided to go work somewhere else. So there is a longer curve of getting your manufacturing back up and running to uh, proficiency levels after Chinese New Year, you literally could lose six weeks in the middle of a fairly heavy production cycle. Do you find yourself having to sell yourself to the manufacturers? So what we do is we've created what we call a, a, a partnership, pro, uh, partnership uh, presentation which we actually, it, it just, it gives them an idea of who we are, what we're trying to produce. It tells them about our customer. It tells them a little bit about uh, background of management team. Um, gives the factory a better feeling for who you are when you're dealing halfway across the world. And, um, and I think it's just really important. It's, it's part of the relationship building that one needs to go through when they're talking about dealing with um, you know, factories in, in China. Um, I think that's important. The other thing that's important is, is face to face. I will be off to China here in about a month, um, going into factories and going into mills and, and just sitting down face to face, discussing business with, uh, these people. Um, so they know we're real, that, that they know that, that we're there to work with them long term to, you know, that they're looking to, fill their production facility. That's what they're trying to do. And, and if, if we work together in partnership, we'll grow our business. That will give them more production um, on a more consistent basis. Mike, let's say I'm a new startup and I would like to start an apparel company for the very first time. How would you advise me going about finding the right manufacturer? Where would I, where would I go? Just start Googling? I, I, well, you, you could Google. There are a couple of associations that you could look into that, that are 
apparel manufacturing associations and textile associations um, that will lead you down a path to talk to people. I would Google, again, companies that are similar to where I seek to go. They may be out there and, and reach out to people. Reach out to them and network with them and ask them where, you know, where did they get started? As a pure startup, one of your problems that you'll face is your, your um, quantities. And uh, you may be forced to find local sources to uh, produce for you until you can get big enough to produce in Asia or other parts of the world. So how good is the San Francisco manufacturing? Uh, the manufacturing is good. It's very good. Where do they get the talent? It's, it's more simplified constructions is really what it comes down to. And, and the talent is today um, in San Francisco, it's Asian. Um, if you go down to L.A., it's more uh, Latino. Um, and and they're, they're hardworking people. Um, but it's, it's fairly simple stitches. Let's make a shift here and talk about selling the product to retailers. You haven't been selling Fisher & Baker yet to retailers, it sounds like. Am I correct? We, uh, we have been out and, and we have uh, gone into the market and presented the product to uh, select and limited distribution of retailers. Okay. So in general, Mike... What is it like to approach those retailers? What advice do you have, if any, to take your apparel brand to those select buyers? Have your story together. Um, it, today, and uh, it, it's ever more important to sell the experience as opposed to selling the product. And, and so have your complete story together. Why, as a buyer, am I going to buy this product when I can find 25 other products that maybe aren't identical, but they're similar? What's going to make you stand out? What's, what's that story that I can get excited about and my sales personnel can get excited about? Can you tell me which retailers you talked to? Were they more independent shops? Yes, our, our retailer today, and it will evolve over time, but our retailer today is specialty menswear stores. And so think in terms of like in Minneapolis, one would look at Martin Patrick III. Um, in New York, one might look at Stephen Allen. And better outdoor retailers. Um, again, in Minneapolis, one might look at um, Sun and Slope. Um, so they're, they're all, they're very sp special boutique-ish in that sense. Um, there are parts of the country where they're, where that special boutique-ish, uh, can help you gain scale. Uh, but that is market by market. And do you look at the nation and identify some of those key tailors when you start a business like this? Yes, absolutely. We have a very, very very targeted list of retailers, both in outdoor and in menswear, that we are targeting. It will, it is part of our marketing plan, um, and and it is also partly to be efficient within our sales um, channel development. And will you be working with sales reps, or will you be distributing this product and selling this product mainly by, with internally within the company? Uh, to the retail channel, we um, we have two uh, strategies that will be deployed. One is in the outdoor space, we will be using independent sales representation. And in the menswear business, we'll be using showrooms. I see. And how do you find the sales reps? So in the outdoor industry, there are a number of organizations that exist uh, that sales reps belong to. and And one can easily... Um, search those out and then begin an interviewing process in many of those organizations they assist the sales reps who are looking for product lines so that's one one method the one the second method that I prefer is 
literally contacting key retailers in markets that you seek a rep in and asking them for their uh, assistance, their advice. Who would they, who do they like to work with? Um, and, and then uh, conducting your interview process from uh, the results you, you get garner there. Um, in the menswear business, um, showrooms are a little bit more difficult, uh, m more so because of the cost involved for a showroom to stay open. And most showrooms are in places like New York and Los Angeles and Dallas and Atlanta. And uh, there it is literally a process of going to boutiques and, uh, and places like Nordstrom and places like Barney's and talking to the buyers uh, about who they like to work with and then going out to the showrooms and doing an interview process. The difference there is that the interview process is much more of a, of a sales process on who Fisher and Baker is. Uh, why do they need us? And so it's a, it's a bit more of a challenge than the independent rep process. Let's talk about pricing. How do you go about setting the price for your product? We went about it, uh, I, I would say, kind of on a three-pronged approach. First was a deep dive into competitive analysis, uh, really understanding who our competition is out there and then understanding both their pricing strategy as well as their channel strategy and how the two play together. Um, once we, we, we brought that together, we, we then went about a fairly extensive research in the marketplace in terms of understanding um, retail price points, understanding wholesale margins, what, what retail really desires within your channel, um, and that varies by channel um, and then and then lastly which has become a much bigger issue today than ever and that is understanding how map or minimum 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 advertised pricing policies work uh, with respect to the retail price points and so we take all that and kind of put that in our in our mix and then finally um, specific to Fisher and Baker, we, we've done focus groups. And, and what we included in our focus groups was an interview process um, that included buyers, consumers, and channel partners to ensure we got the, a broad mix of people um, to help us understand and, and literally ask the questions specific to uh, retail price points. Mike, let's talk about creating awareness and demand. As you know, most startups aim to solve a clear consumer problem. But in the apparel industry, as you were alluding to earlier, there are just so many options for consumers. How do you effectively create awareness and demand for an apparel company with limited budgets? I'm glad you asked the question based upon limited budgets. Uh, you know... It, it, it's different today than it was when when I had in motion. Um, so today, it, it's really it's this different world that uses that has this extensive use of social media. And so for us, we're using social media to play a big role in our outreach to our core customer. We have defined who our core customer is, and and through that definition, we can better uh, target our social media um, in, in attracting or creating awareness and recognition for who we are. In addition to that, we're using social media to play a role with the buyer. More and more buyers today at, at retail, um, you know, A, go to your website and then B, to go to your social media to find out, are, are you getting out there? Are, is, is anybody following this company, this brand? Um, if they're not, they question whether they should jump on board with you and be your retail partner. So, so we're using social media for both of those things. It's highly advisable to walk in and not just say, we're going to do social media. We're going to post on Facebook or we're going to do Instagram or what, Snapchat or Pinterest or whatever it is. Um, for us, we have a 
a very well-defined social media strategy um, that we're deploying, uh, and, and we're, we're adding to it some very unique campaign, not campaigns, but um, tactics um, to create content, which becomes key to that. So that's one part of what we're doing. Another part is we're using influencers at a grassroots level. Um, and, and for most startups who don't have money, this could be, um, you know, the way to get off the ground. One has to be careful because the whole idea of influencers has almost gotten out of control. Um, one hears about influencers that are being paid big dollars and, and A, you don't have the money to pay out the big dollars, but B, those that, that can pay something out, it almost, um, people see through it more and more today. So our program that we're deploying is a strategy created um, awareness through what we're calling locals. And um, we are literally hand selecting people in various markets of the United States that um, we can seed product to uh, and we can get them to help us build our both our social following but also more of a direct marketing uh, following. And um, so we actually we've just put that in place here a couple weeks ago. So that's a second part. Um, we are also at the same time beginning to build a, an ambassador group. Uh, and, and this is more extensive where we'll have people in the market that will not only help create awareness for us, but give us feed, product feedback and market feedback and things like that. Um, of course, the website is a tool, but again, I go back to understanding what your story is and being able to put your story out there, uh, even if you're using your website to sell product, which we are. We're, we're using our website as a, as a tool to uh, let someone buy our product online, but we really still feel that the story is what has to deliver that. And finally, for us, it's in-store presence and you, leveraging merchandising and retail store personnel. Uh, merchandising from the standpoint of of both education and information and then um, the retail store personnel to create mindshare uh, whether that be through motivational tools or what but if someone walks into a store and our products in that store we want that store personnel to be pushing Fisher and Baker brand and uh, so there's a number of tactics we've put in place with some of the limited distribution we've already set up uh, in, in assisting to create some of that awareness. Let's get personal. So Mike, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of a hundred people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. Starting a business is special and frankly, pretty unusual. What motivates a guy like you, Mike Arbeiter, to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a business like in motion or Fisher and Baker? You know, I think you have to have the, I don't know, just the sense. Um, you have to have the drive. You have to, uh, for me at a very young, well, it was start of my career. I, I had this firsthand look at rollerblade and, and that launched me into my desire to be an entrepreneur. And um, I, I think it's if you don't have that desire, um, and, and you and I have done this, John, through our, our uh, work at the university, it, it's all in. And if you're not all in, don't become an entrepreneur. It's, uh, you have to be all in. You have to be willing to work the long hours. You have to be willing to, to uh, have the ups and downs. Um, and, and you have to be, you know, a risk taker. Do you think if you did not have that exposure to Scott Olson with a rollerblade in the once in a lifetime chance to be with that company at such an early stage, do you think you would have been inspired to have that entrepreneurial moxie? That's a great question. I, I don't know that I know that for a fact. Um, you know, the question becomes, is, is an entrepreneur... Uh, are, are you are you born with that gene, or, or does it uh, does it evolve over time with what you see? 
Mike, what has been your biggest joy or what have you been most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? My greatest joy is seeing team members that have helped me along the way build businesses go on and either start a business of their own or be successful in, um, in, in other careers. That's my greatest joy. I've been very fortunate to have some very, very good people uh, work with me and work for me along the way who have gone on to do some exceptional things in their life, both professionally and personally, and, and that gives me greatest joy. What has been your biggest frustration? You know, I think my biggest frustration is 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 people as well. It's um, it's uh, you know a failure in a hiring process, um, and you have the wrong person, and and you end up finding, you know, someone that's they're they're not right. They're not right for the culture. They're not right for the business. Whatever the case may be, and and um, and and that mistake, um, that mistake that that you've made more than they've made in making uh, the wrong hiring decision and then the process one goes through to uh, either help that person move to a different position or help that person go find something else to do. But it's, a, it's highly inefficient for the company and that's, that's where I think the frustration, and not just the company, but that individual themselves as well. Mike, along those same lines, many entrepreneurs, even very successful ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey, even when they're at the peak of their performance. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? You know, I, th I, th I think all of us as entrepreneurs go through some type of, of you know, self-doubt or, or even self-reflection about what, what we're doing at the time. Um, for me, it's having the experience that allows me to take a deep breath, take a step back, and look from a very um, I, I, a very realistic perspective to say, what do we have to do to overcome what it is that is uh, you know, a hurdle in front of me today that I'm not sure I can get over. Um, it's, it's, you go down a path and, you know, a tree has fallen in the path or a rock is in your way. How do you shift or pivot? And, and so for me, um, that's how I deal with any, you know, self doubt or, or, uh, or concern or challenge, um, to where I'm trying to lead something. Mike, as you know, starting a business, a new business is really difficult. How has starting your own businesses or being a partner in a business changed you as a person, if at all? I don't know that it's really changed me. It's probably made me more reflective on how I deal with people around me and my own life. Um, to me... Um, the most important thing in building a business is people. And if you can build a business that people share, you know, in your same core values and your vision and, you know, your burning desire to succeed, if you can then take that same process and build it into your personal life, um, then I think that's a, you know, that's a great learning experience for you. But it's, it's about people. And, and so hopefully, I hope at least, hopefully I've been, uh, I've uh, become a better person for, um, for what I've tried to do professionally. Mike, we're coming to the end of the podcast and I have three remaining questions for you. Number one, what have you learned most about yourself in starting a business? It's all about people. Great people create great things. Um, and, uh, yeah, most important. Who has been most influential to you in your life? Well, I think, uh, my parents have been influential. My parents taught me 
about hard work and they taught me about respect for others and they taught me about organization. I think those are all really important things in building a business, particularly a business that if you truly believe that people are the most important thing in it. And um, and I think, uh, you know, a gentleman who was a mentor of mine uh, who uh, unfortunately has passed away about four years ago, but Eddie Phillips. Uh, and Eddie taught me an awful lot about the importance of, of people and an awful lot about the importance of process and, and reflection on where you're going and what you're doing. You know, issues of vision and, and, and what's important to not only the business of the business, but the people of the business. Mike, and finally, did I miss any questions that you feel that you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? I don't know that there are any questions, John. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you for including me in your podcast here. Uh, the only thing I would say to young entrepreneurs is um, if you want to become an entrepreneur, go about it understanding that you need to have an awful lot of passion in what you're doing. Understand that it's a 24-7 gig, and so you better love it. Um, within understanding that it's a 24-7 gig, um, take time. Breathe. It's important. Um, and, and finally, surround yourself with people that do share in, uh, who are like-minded. They share in the like I mentioned earlier, the core values and they share in your vision and they share in your burning desire to succeed. I think if, if you do that, you stand a better chance of succeeding overall, both professionally and personally. Mike, you've been an outstanding guest offering juicy tidbits of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. John, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.